This is a story of who we were. How we got here. And where we are going. You've got mail. So join us as we take history off the page. It will be our wish and purpose that the processes of peace, when they are begun, shall be absolutely open and that they shall involve and permit henceforth no secret understandings of any kind. The day of conquest and aggrandizement is gone by. So is also the day of secret covenants entered into in the interests of particular governments and likely at some unlooked-for moment to upset the peace of the world. It is this happy fact, now clear to the view of every public man whose thoughts do not still linger in an age that is dead and gone, which makes it possible for every nation whose purposes are consistent with justice and the peace of the world to avow now or at any other time the objects it has in view. Skipping a little bit. What we demand in this war, therefore, is nothing peculiar to ourselves. It is that the world be made fit and safe to live in, and particularly that it be made safe for every peace-loving nation, which, like our own, wishes to live its own life, determine its own institutions, be assured of justice and fair dealings by the other peoples of the world, as against force and selfish aggression. These were the words of President Woodrow Wilson in a speech to Congress, January 8, 1918. Now, as I'm recording this lecture, it is mid-February 2023. We here in the United States have just witnessed the, uh, the most recent version of the State of the Union. And for those of you who aren't familiar with American politics, this is a speech that the president is required to give each year by the U.S. Constitution. And so he's supposed to come down. He kind of gives a report, kind of says, you know, this is how things are going. This is where we're doing well. And of course, over the course of the 20th century, this report became a major political event, right? If you're the president, this is an opportunity to speak not only to the Congress, but especially to the American people. And so over the years, it was this big, widely celebrated affair, and all the, all the networks would cover it. Uh, millions of people would watch the speeches live. But this year, the coverage of it was kind of different. A lot of commentators basically said, you know, it's a big speech, but no one cares. Nobody is really going to watch it who's undecided. And in fact, the way that kind of news circulates today, the way that our, our information ecosystem functions, we don't sit down and watch speeches for an hour and a half. We don't need to. We can just go on the internet, we can go on social media, and we can just read about what happened. If there's a particularly important line, if there's a, a major clip, right, if, if somebody in the audience was shouting, we can just see that. We don't need to sit through the whole speech. We just read about it, we see it. Okay. So a big kind of question for those of you that are political scientists out there or amateur political scientists, do speeches matter anymore? All right, we love to have speeches. We love, I'm sitting here, we saw the Super Bowl last night. Um, there was a, a big speech. There was, uh, I believe it was one of the Williams sisters and she's in the locker room and she's giving the big speech. How much do speeches really matter in today's society? How, how influential are they? How much do they really change or inspire or mobilize people anymore. I can't tell you what the situation is for the present, but I do know that Woodrow Wilson's address to Congress on January 8th, 1918, often referred to as the 14-point address, this speech was different. This was the type of speech 
that mattered. Not only for Wilson's own career, not only for American politics, one could argue that this was one of the most important speeches, if not the most important speech, from a European perspective, of the 20th century. Because the speech was not just the typical speech, okay, the politician's going to talk, he's going to lay out his vision for the future, he's going to have some sort of aspirational goals. A lot of times politicians, uh, especially for the State of the Union, they like to come out and they like to say, you know, here is the, the agenda that I'm moving forward on. Sometimes in American history, there have been scandals. They kind of say, well, you know, let me, let me put this scandal into context. Let me defend myself a little bit. Let me defend this policy that I advocated. But that's not what Wilson's speech was. Instead, it was part of a larger attempt to redefine the meaning of the First World War, to make the sacrifices of millions of young men on the battlefields of Europe mean something again to be worth something. Why are all these millions and millions, a generation of young men being cut down on the battlefield? What is it all for? As we'll see in a second, by the time the United States enters the war, the idea that it is for the sanctity of Belgian neutrality or French honor, these things don't seem to, to, to make sense anymore, right? The, the What you win from it versus the cost the equation is completely out of whack. And so Wilson's mission is to make the war meaningful again. Now, the way he goes about doing that is essentially to redefine the war as a crusade for liberal values, to create democratic rather than dynastic regimes, guarantees for personal liberties and constitutionalism and free trade and the rule of law. To use Wilson's words from uh, an earlier speech, the war was fought in order to create a world to be made safe for democracy. Not only democracy in the individual sense, the idea that, you know, what is the style of government of your country? Okay, it's a democracy and we vote. But to create a new international order based on the idea that Europe and the world, in fact, were a community of nations, and each of those nations had various rights. Each of them had the right to liberty. Each of them had the right to pursue their own happiness as long as they didn't interfere with others. Somewhat ironically, one could argue that this Wilsonian vision is essentially what Europe has become in the 21st century under the European Union. Right? It's a collective group of nations that work together, that have common goals, that have mutual respect. Yes, they argue with each other, they disagree about policies, but no European Union country has ever gone to war with another European Union country. Right? They get along, and it provides stability. So this vision that Wilson began outlining, even from the moment that the United States declared war, it's not just, again, some speech but it is laying out a powerful vision of a utopian future. And as we saw in the case of Russia and communism, the future can be a powerful motivational concept. People may not be happy with the present. People may have to make sacrifices in the present, but they often become willing to do so. They're often willing to set aside rules and norms and expectations if it is for this vision of the future. And so whether Wilson would have framed it in the terms that I'm about to put it, his idealism was essentially a last desperate attempt to rescue and rebuild the European civilization that had been born and come of age in the 19th century. Again, a European civilization built on capitalism, built on liberalism, classic liberalism, built on the ideas of technology and progress. This is what Wilson is trying to do. He is trying to salvage 19th century Europe. Now, whether or not it worked will be the subject of today's podcast on the Wilsonian moment. I'm borrowing this term from a historian named Erez Manella, who wrote a book by the same name, talking about this subject. You can find a link to it um, on our website, www.historyoffthepage.com. 
But what the term refers to is this moment starting in the beginning of 1918, really, lasting all the way through the Paris Peace Conference, when suddenly Europeans become enthusiastic again. Suddenly they start to say, maybe the war wasn't for nothing. Maybe this could be the war that ends all wars. Maybe that will make the sacrifices, the losses, the deaths, the destroyed and deformed bodies, the suffering, the starvation, the separation. Maybe that will make all of this worth it. So we're going to go into all of this today on the episode. We'll start by discussing the Paris Peace Conference, of course. And we'll talk just a little bit about the treaties that it produced. We'll we'll talk about the Treaty of Versailles, which is the one that uh, most people are familiar with. But we'll also talk about the other treaties as well and some of their long-term effects. In the second half of today's episode, we're going to talk about some of the problems. And not just with the treaty system, but with the actual environment of Europe itself. One of the dirty little secrets of World War I is that it does not really end on November 11th, 1918. Yes, there is an armistice that is struck between the Allies, and basically Germany. But the violence that characterized World War I continues, in many cases, sort of unabated or erupts in entirely new locations. The fighting doesn't stop in November of 1918. It just kind of changes locations in some cases. The causes change. The sides change in in certain ways. But Europe in 1919 is still an enormously violent place. And so that's what we're going to get into in our podcast episode today. Now, before we get too heavily into the details of the peace treaties, the conference, you know, the fallout, etc., I want to spend just a few moments putting Wilson's speech into a bit more context. We did an episode on World War I. Some of you may have listened to it, but maybe some of you haven't. So for those of you that, that haven't listened to it, Basically, by the time you get to the winter of 1917, the armies of Europe have basically fought themselves into exhaustion or near exhaustion. The Russian Empire, starting as early as the winter of 1917, had already begun to disintegrate. Strikes, mutinies, right? This leads to the February Revolution in 1917 and eventually to the October Revolution that sees the Bolsheviks seize power. The French army, too, had begun to collapse. During the Nivelle Offensive in early May of 1917, again, massive losses, massive lack of imagination from the leadership that seems to think, well, you just keep assaulting these places, just keep lobbing artillery at it, and eventually, it cost us 10,000, 20,000, 100,000 lives, eventually we'll break through. For the French armies in May of 1917, the soldiers the Harry Pollu, they don't want to continue this sacrifice. It doesn't make sense. It seems nihilistic. It seems purposeless. And so they too, mutiny, it's only when they make changes to the French high command, they bring in this guy Patin. He basically says, I'm not going to launch major offensives anymore. We'll just fight on the defensive. And the the troops come back and, and decide to fight some more. Now, for the British and the Germans, morale is a little bit higher. The Germans, uh, having just knocked the Russians out of the war, start to feel this surge of enthusiasm again. But it's a surge of enthusiasm that is also tempered because they know that there's kind of a clock ticking with the American entry into the war. They know they're going to have superior numbers, but they also know that this is kind of the last big offensive. They're going to roll the dice and they're just going to see what happens. To the south and east, however, the Austro-Hungarian army had already lost much of its combat effectiveness by this point. In fact, one could argue the only reason that the Austro-Hungarians are successful against the Russians is because they get reinforcements from the Germans. The one exception to this for Austria-Hungary, the big moment that they cover themselves in glory, is because they find an army that is even more ineffective than they are. And that becomes the Italians' were routed at the Battle of Caporetto in late fall 1917. Italy's military incompetence during the First World War leads, as we'll see later, directly 
to the rise of fascism. We don't spend much time talking about some of the smaller nations during World War I, but Serbia and Romania, who both joined the Entente or the Allied side, by 1917, both of them have fought valiantly, heroically, but they have both been defeated and are in the process of being occupied. For Serbia in particular, there is enormous suffering as they take the remnants of their army and they march across the mountains to try to get down into Greece. In short, by the fall of 1917, World War I had turned into a battle of attrition, a war without victors, only survivors. It's in this context, as everyone has realized this war is a disaster, that suddenly America is going to be thrust into it by Woodrow Wilson. And this is somewhat of a surprise, right? Not only is it obvious today in retrospect, okay, this war is a bad idea, millions of men are dying, but Americans themselves did not want to get into the war. At the start of the 20th century, Europe seemed to be someplace that was really far away, right? The, the big dominant sort of way of thinking in American foreign policy is either isolationism, like let's just stay out of it, mind our own business, or it's the idea that we need to kind of patrol the Western Hemisphere, we have our spheres of influence, but Europe isn't really part of that. In fact, this importance of isolationism is such a big deal that when Woodrow Wilson is locked in a tight re-election campaign in the fall of 1916, one of his big slogans is, he kept us out of war. Incidentally, he also has another slogan that some of you uh, in the United States will be familiar with. Uh, this is the idea of America first. That was not invented by Charles Lindenberg. It was, uh, there's a deeper history to it. It's not a very complicated idea. But Woodrow Wilson basically says, we don't want to be in this war. Another kind of interesting fact, um, we like to think about close elections now in the 21st century here in the United States. The election of 1916 was incredibly close. Uh, once again, you had these kind of regional divisions uh, where uh, basically the North is very pro-Republican, the South and West were pro-Democratic, and so Wilson is locked in this tight race, and basically it all comes down to California, which is decided by just a couple thousand votes. And so... This idea of he kept us out of war, it's not just a, an incidental thing. It's not just a minor part of Wilson's campaign. It is a major selling point as to why you should vote for Woodrow Wilson. And yet, just six months later, Wilson reverses course, and through Congress, the United States will declare war on Germany, and then later on on Austria-Hungary as well. So again, this this speech on January 8th, it's not just another speech, it's part of a larger effort to justify the war to the American public. And also to kind of argue, look, we're not just fighting a war to fight a war, we're fighting a war to fight peace, or to fight for peace. We're fighting this war to end the future of war, right? We can build a new future once we've cleared away the rubble by becoming basically the decisive factor winning the war. Now, there are other elements to this as well. Uh, as, as you might know, if you follow American history, the Germans had just resumed unrestricted submarine warfare. Basically, the British are blockading Germany, and this is um, devastating to the German economy. There's a lot of shortages, food shortages, suffering. Right? The, the blockade is a huge deal for the German war effort. And so to retaliate for that, they try to use submarines to kind of cut off the British Isles, Initially, their losses are heavy because the submarine surfaces and then they can get shot at. So they say, we're going to do unrestricted submarines, no warnings. We see you, we shoot, we sink ships. Another thing that got them into trouble was they also started talking to Mexico. There's a famous episode known as the Zimmerman Telegram, where basically the Germans cable the, the Mexicans and say, you know, if the United States gets into this war and you're going to be on the Entente side, you could join our side, and if we happen to win, we can help you get back some of those territories the U.S. took from you uh, in the 1840s. So these factors matter. But overwhelmingly, the, the most influential argument Wilson made 
was to transform the war into a moral cause. To transform it, one could argue, essentially into a crusade. It was not a response to a particular grievance or an attempt to win territory or glory. It is, again, a quest to make the world safe for democracy. And so again, on January 8th, he begins to lay out the specific framework for this new post-war order. And just to condense things a little bit, we're talking about open diplomacy, right? No more secret treaties, secret negotiations. Of course, being an American, being someone that believes in classical liberalism, he advocates for free trade and navigation, right? If we trade with each other, if we're happy, then we probably won't fight each other, right? Doesn't make much sense uh, logically. He calls for a reduction in global arms. He also calls for the evacuation of all occupied territory and says, you know what? In the future, instead of fighting wars over this, instead of invading each other, let's just sit down and talk. If you've uh, listened to this podcast at all, you know I like to talk a lot about the war in Ukraine right now. There are a number of people out there saying, why are they still fighting? Why don't they just sit down? Can't they just negotiate it? Can't they just figure out a better, less violent way to solve their differences. And this was essentially what Wilson was calling for in 1918. Let's have rational discussions over the natural borders of each nation. We can use science. Eventually, we can use maps. We can use the census. We can rationalize a settlement that should be agreeable to everybody. He also includes language calling for the recreation or resurrection of former states like Poland and certain other colonial subjects, especially from the Ottoman Empire. And of course, the last thing that he does, which is probably the thing that he's best known for, is calling for the creation of the League of Nations. This was supposed to be a global institution that would oversee and enforce the rules once the people had a chance to get together and, and talk it through. So these are essentially the, the main thrust of the 14 points, right? I've, I've paraphrased them. I've boiled them down a little bit uh, just to make it a little easier to, to get through right in a podcast. Now, whatever Wilson's personal shortcomings were, and obviously when we talk about Woodrow Wilson today, we tend not only to think about, well, you know, his system didn't work out so well. The League of Nations never really functioned effectively. There's a whole other side to Woodrow Wilson dealing with race and segregation. Um, he was very pro-segregationist. Uh, he actually led the segregation of the federal bureaucracy here in the United States. So Wilson has a lot of complications to him, and today is probably not as popular as he would have been 30, 40 years ago. But again, whatever these shortcomings were, his speech was a tremendous success. For many Europeans, again, this idealism helps give the war new meaning. No longer is it a conflict about Belgium. Serbia, Austro-Hungary and its sovereignty. We're not fighting about imperial domination or colonial or economic rivalries. We're not fighting for material interests, things that are just about us. We are fighting for the foundations of a new Europe, one that will be predicated on freedom and liberty for all people. And again, on the surface, this is a revolutionary vision. This isn't just, you know, some think tank, some policy wonk, some, you know, the Lord Curzon negotiations. This is a major revolutionary deal. It is going to rip up the map of Eastern Europe, where basically you had four empires by the, the middle of the 19th century, four empires rule all of Eastern Europe. And this is going to shatter that imperial system. It also would have been the kind of death knell to early modern politics. Early modern politics is based on dynastic states. It's based on a king, on an empire. It's based on the idea that how does Austria-Hungary win glory for itself? It must continue to expand. It must conquer new provinces. It must establish new colonies. Wilson's vision is replacing this with a consortium of free people where national identity will form the basis of a new politics, circumscribed by the classic liberal ideals, such as, again, the guarantee of personal liberties, free trade, constitutional government, and the rule of law. 
So again, in some ways, this is a very revolutionary proposition. But it's also effective because it's built on a 19th century, core 19th century vision. A desire that many Europeans had felt long before Wilson was really even born. This is the idea of what we call the nationality principle. That political harmony can best be achieved by letting all peoples form political communities based on their respective national identities. Again, if you think back to the history of the 19th century, was not the formation of the German and Italian states a project that really goes back to the Napoleonic Wars? Had not the German and Hungarian and Polish nationalists attempted to create national states in the 1830s and 40s? And while these efforts had only occasionally borne fruit, they had also been largely co-opted or constrained by existing dynastic authorities. Think about a place like Germany. Germany does get built, right? It does become a national state that, there. you know, what is the purpose of Germany? Why does it exist? Where does its sovereignty come from? It comes from the notion that there is a German-speaking people out there, a German people, and that they need some kind of political representation, a government, if you will, to reflect their collective views. Now, this vision is co-opted, corrupted, depends on your point of view, by Bismarck and the Hohenzollern dynasty. It is not the vision of the liberals of the Frankfurt parliament. In other places in Europe, we also have this kind of failure of the revolution. In places like Poland, there is no Poland going into World War I. In places like Serbia or Hungary, Okay, they finally do get kind of national states, but there is a sense that there are ethnic brothers and sisters who live outside of its dominion. If you go to a place like Serbia in the 1880s, there is a sense that, yeah, we've gained some independence, but the overall project of building the nation is not complete yet. And so one can argue that Wilson's speech did not introduce a new idea, Rather, it reminded Europeans of the long-held dream that now, due to the destructive nature of the war, seemed once again possible. One could argue that the immediate post-war period, then, was an attempt to transform the ideological desires of the 19th century, which were based on the idea of national sovereignty, into the political basis of the 20th. Okay. As the war continued into the fateful year of 1918, Wilson's idealism was more or less embraced by all of the untaught powers. Although for some, this is more public posturing, right? Especially the big politicians, the big nations. Right? France, you know, how do we motivate our people to fight? We kind of reached a crisis here. Britain, how do we, you know, again, mobilize people after a whole generation has been literally left on the battlefield? This idealism seems promising. This seems to awaken an opportunity to create a war where we are once again the good guys rather than just people who are fighting and and dying and suffering. Now, for some members of the Entente, they are going to more pay lip service to this than, than it's going to be their true convictions. The Italians in particular are not really caring about democracy and liberalism. The Italians want to expand. The Italians look at themselves as a young nation, a rising nation, They want to move into Dalmatia. That's why they joined the war, right? They signed a secret treaty with the British saying, okay, you know, if we fight, then we're going to get this territory when the war is over. Now, the central powers at first rejected Wilson's points because when they're made in the late winter, early spring of 1918, the central powers still feel like they might be able to win the war. But after March of 1918, as the offensive begins to grind to a halt, especially into the summer of 1918 and the fall, the central powers begin to realize we are going to get a much better deal based on Wilsonian principles than we will on the principles of Brest-Litovsk, for example, that we just tried to impose on the Russians. And so as things begin to break down again in the fall of 1918, the central powers say, yes, we would like to have a negotiated peace. And we're going to do it based on the principles that Wilson set forward. November 1918 comes. The armistice is signed. 
finally say, okay, we are going to have this negotiation and it's going to proceed in December. And so in December of 1918, as Europe's leaders are beginning to gather in Paris, it's understood that the 14 points are basically going to serve as the basis of the peace. Just to add to this, when Wilson shows up in Paris, he is greeted as a rock star, as a global hero. They literally organize parades and line the streets. You can see pictures of this. They've got like signs that say, Vive Wilson! Long live Wilson! Right? He's almost like a king when he arrives in Paris. And so for many onlookers, Wilson seemed to be the man of the hour, a prophet of democracy and liberty whose moment had come to bring these values to the masses. To apply these principles, the leaders of the Entente powers basically meet in January 1919 in Paris, at first at the Quai d'Orsay, and later on they'll gather at the Palace of Versailles to try to flush out all the details of the treaty. What they wanted to do was something akin to the Congress of Vienna. The Congress of Vienna took place in 1815 after the end of the Napoleonic Wars. Basically, it featured all the major powers. One of the the advantages of that was that the big defeated power was France, but it wasn't Napoleon's government that was negotiating. It was the restored monarchy that everybody kind of wanted to be friends with, that wanted to turn the clock back to the pre-revolutionary era. So they're going to have this uh, conference, they're going to have this negotiation, they'll sit down with the Germans, they'll sit down with the Austro-Hungarians, they'll sit down with the Ottomans, and they'll, they'll come up with something that everybody can agree to. Before you can get to that point, however, the Entente is filled with a lot of different countries, different backgrounds. So they say, you know what, let's have a little mini conference, we'll do a pre-conference, we'll sit down the big five powers, France, Italy, the U.S., Britain and Japan, and we'll sit down and and we'll kind of negotiate a common position so that when we go to negotiate with the central powers, you know, we we have a common bargaining point. They can't appeal to to Wilson and try to, you know, isolate the French or something like that. You know, let's get a common negotiating platform together. The problem is, as I mentioned, even though the Entente powers had all kind of paid lip service to the Wilsonian points, they don't really want that. Many of them don't really, you know, it's, it's, it's more just sort of lip service. And so they kind of break down on issues, right? The British want, as they usually do, more of a kind of balance of power. The French want sort of more punitive actions taken. The Italians are not so concerned with what's going on in Germany. They want to take territory from Austria-Hungary and then especially Dalmatia. So basically, instead of having this short pre-conference And then following that up with a direct negotiation, what happens is weeks after weeks after weeks of direct negotiations between the big four. Wilson of the United States, Clemenceau of France, Lloyd George of Britain, and Vittorio Orlando of Italy. Those four get together and they almost are like a royal court where you have members of various delegations representing the various national groups. You have a Polish group, Czech group, Romanian group. So all from the Entente side of things, though, or sympathies to the Entente powers, they all come in and they make a case. This, When you're drawing the borders of Poland, this is what the new Poland should look like. This is essentially one of history's most important marketing campaigns. I should come in and you've got to take somebody like Wilson, who, you know, he's never heard of Ruthenians. He doesn't know what a Ukrainian is. So you've got to make your pitch. You've got to win him over. And so to do this, these groups come in with uh, census statistics, maps, tables, figures. I mean, it really is this kind of wild west of, of arguments where, you know, you come up with anything that you can to try to convince the big four to, to view your delegation in the most favorable light possible. Now, the Entente powers were aware that this was possible. They wanted to have a kind of scientific adjudication, if you will. And so one of the things that they begin to do is, even before the conference starts, they form their own institutions, their own bodies, to try to produce objective information. The American version of this is called the Inquiry, and it's headed by Colonel Edward House in Sydney, Mezes. 
it draws on some of the, the sort of best and brightest minds in American academia. Uh, they put together all kinds of research, kinds of here's the history of this people, right? So they're going to, they're gonna, again, 150 scholars are involved in this. They're going to try to create objectivity in a world that, as we'll see in a second, is incredibly subjective. Now, just like any good marketing campaign, this process plays out not only in the halls of the Palace of Versailles or the Quai d'Orsay, but it also happens in hotel rooms, late night bars, right? This is a, a giant negotiation. People are trying to make friendships. People are trying direct and indirect ways of influencing the big four. It's also in a very interesting way, a global moment. It is not just a question of Europeans sitting around saying, how do we redraw the boundaries of Europe? But it also features a number of, of interesting people that come from, again, all over the world to try to press their claims at Paris. One of the most famous of these figures is the Saudi Prince Faisal I, who was accompanied by his British advisor, a man named T.E. Lawrence. Those of you that have seen the movie Lawrence of Arabia, you'll see this whole process play out. Also present in Paris that year was a young Vietnamese drifter named Win Sin Kung, who along with others wrote letters to the Big Four pleading for Vietnam's independence from France. You all probably know Win better by an alias that he later used, which was Ho Chi Minh. Those of you that don't know a whole lot about Ho Chi Minh, other than the fact that he was the leader of communist Vietnam during the independence wars after World War II, uh, Ho Chi Minh is a really interesting guy. He's a communist, but he also has this love of the United States and especially American idealism. He really struggles with the Cold War because he's looking at the United States saying, you guys are an anti-colonial power. The, the words of Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence, these are the same things we're thinking in Vietnam today. And so he kind of expects a natural alliance to form between the United States and the Vietnamese people. And of course, as we know, that alliance did not happen uh, because of the Cold War. Uh, if you ever get the chance to go to Vietnam, you'll see that it has happened in the wake of the Cold War. Uh, relationships between the United States and Vietnam today are incredibly good. Uh, if you ever get the chance to go there, uh, I highly recommend it. Okay, sorry for getting a little sidetracked there on the issue of Vietnam. Now, despite the idealism that underpinned these efforts, when it came down to, as we say in the United States, push came to shove, when it came down to making difficult decisions, instead of being guided by idealism, Many times, the big four are guided by power politics. It is less about establishing global or rational consensus. It is more about what is in the interests of these big four nations. And even if it's not in my particular nation's interest, maybe I'm going to use that as leverage in a negotiation for something else. Behind closed doors, one of the biggest issues is not how do we you know, recognize the the rights of people to self-determination, it becomes much more about how do we stop Germany from starting a future war? How do we make these newly emergent states like Yugoslavia, Poland, Czechoslovakia, how do we make them militarily and economically defensible? And so this leads, after the treaties are finally announced, to a number of accusations of hypocrisy, where the much-celebrated nationality principle championed by Wilson gets abandoned and in many ways just kind of thrown out the window altogether, right? It's, it's just completely violated. In the end, what ends up happening is those former allies hashed out five major treaties that instead of negotiating with the defeated Germans and, and giving them a voice and saying, okay, what is your opinion? What do you think is fair? How can we meet your needs and also our needs? Instead, they're more just sort of presented to them. Uh, in German, it's, it's often referred to as a dictate or a diktat in German. Right? This is just the Allies dictated this. They handed it to the German delegation. And when this first happens in May of uh, 1919, the German delegation does not want to sign the Treaty of Versailles. They almost literally do it at kind of gunpoint. Right there, they said, we're not going to sign this treaty. 
the Entente powers said, well, if you're not going to sign it, then the war is going to be back on. We're going to do the blockade. We're going to send in armies. And so it's only at the end of June in 1919, pretty much five years to the day that the war began with the um, assassination of, of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, or at least the cause of the war began, that they finally relent and sign the treaty. Now, of course, historically speaking, the Treaty of Versailles has gotten a very poor reputation. Uh, it is often kind of referred to as the kind of example of what you don't want to do in making treaties, in ending wars. As the French general Ferdinand Foch best summed up after the treaty was done, he said, this is not a peace. This is an armistice for 20 years. History has kind of borne him out to be correct. Now, the terms of the treaty are often viewed or thought of as being especially harsh. Germany lost some 65,000 square kilometers of territory, including 7 million people. It lost significant amounts of critical resources like iron, coal, and foodstuffs. Germany was stripped of all its colonies, and caps were placed on the size of its army and navy. And there was actually a part of uh, Germany called the Rhineland, which they were not allowed to station troops in because that would make it easier for the French to invade uh, or it would make them impossible for them to potentially invade someone else. But the most humiliating part of the treaty was Article 231, which forced Germany to accept responsibility for starting the war. And this was humiliating not just because of the sort of, you know, the sense throughout the war that, well, the Allies had forced this war on us, but it is humiliating because it is used to justify reparations. The Entente, and especially the British and the French, they look at the legacy of the war and they say, look, you guys did this to us. You destroyed all these Belgian towns, all these French railroads. You are responsible for this. You owe us money to pay for it. In some ways, the Germans brought this on themselves. Even though this is a large figure that I'm going to tell you in a minute, the Germans, after the Franco-Prussian War in 1870, said, you know what, the war is the French fault. You guys owe us money for all the suffering, all the money we had to spend on the war. So there, there is some, you know, kind of precedent for this. It's not just kind of invented whole cloth by the Entente powers. But the money that the Entente demanded was an astronomical sum. We're talking about 132 billion gold marks. Billion with a B. To give you an idea of how much money this was, after it was adjusted in 1928, the expectation was that Germany would still be paying this debt until 1988. Think about that for a second. The idea that this is going to take 60 to 70 years to pay off is incredible. The idea that Germans aren't just going to be the ones suffering and paying the bills, and it's not even just going to be their kids, their grandchildren, three generations of Germans are going to owe money to French and Belgians. That is incredible. Moreover, it's not just a financial issue. It's not just that, well, I've got to write a check every year, or the government's going to collect taxes and send that check out. One of the problems is that after World War I is over, it's not like the economy revs back up and everything is great and, you know, it's good times party. The economy, quite the opposite, has just been through five years of incredible hardship. There has been a tremendous amount of inflation, which has largely wiped out or significantly damaged middle-class savings. So where are the Germans going to get the money to pay all these reparations back? The answer becomes they don't just pay with money, but they're going to pay in kind. The Entente powers force the Germans to build ships in German harbors that then they immediately turn over to the Entente powers. The Entente will show up at German coal fields and just basically grab the coal or force the, the Germans to mine the coal and then ship it to them. Can you imagine how hard this is? Can you imagine it's cold, you're suffering, it's the winter of, let's say, 1919, 1920, you're a coal miner, 
And that coal doesn't go to heat things for your family. It goes to your enemy. They just take it. So despite the lofty goals of the Versailles Treaty and again of Wilsonian's idealism and the Paris Peace Conference as a whole, the treaty really doesn't accomplish a whole lot. In fact, as many many people during the time said this, as we just saw with Foch, uh, John Maynard Keynes is also extremely critical of the treaty. The treaty basically lays the seeds for World War II. If you go back, you want to look at the big picture, and we'll talk about this obviously later in the podcast. How do we get to World War II? Much of it is Hitler saying, I am point by point going to revise the Versailles Treaty and get rid of the things that I don't like. Now, a lot of times we don't talk a whole lot about the other treaties that were signed with other defeated powers, um, the way that they were kind of presented and negotiated. They kind of followed after the big one uh, with Germany. But I do want to run through them and mention a couple of their uh, characteristics really quickly. The Treaty of Saint-Germain was signed with Austria on September 10th. This treaty disbanded officially the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And it also called for Austrians to pay reparations as the Germans had. Now, when it actually comes down to it, the Austrians like to play a a really interesting game that uh, maybe if you have siblings, this this sometimes happens. You have two siblings. The parents say, go clean your rooms. The older sibling says, I'm not going to clean my room. I don't want to do it. I'm upset, blah, blah, blah. And the parent spends so much time fighting with the older sibling that the younger sibling just kind of says, yeah, okay, and uh, they kind of get ignored. And in the end, they, they don't enforce the punishment on the younger sibling because they're so exhausted by dealing with and focusing on the older sibling. This is essentially what happens with Austria. By the time you get to 1919, everybody's all sick of these negotiations. They're sick of trying to fight about reparations. The Austrians say, you know what? We're poor. We don't really have that much. We just lost our empire. And so they never actually end up paying that, those reparations back. Austria kind of gets forgiven and, and ignored. On November 27th, the Entente powers signed the the Treaty of Neuilly with Bulgaria, which forced it to give up territory to its neighbors while also putting caps on the size of its army. Bulgaria had fought against its neighbors during not just World War I, but in the immediate run-up to that in the Balkan Wars, especially the Second Balkan War in, uh, in 1913. The fourth treaty was the Treaty of Trianon, which was signed on June 4th, 1920. This also involved the making of territorial concessions by the newly independent Hungarian state. And the result of this was that it left several million Hungarians outside of its borders, at least ethnic Hungarians. Finally, on August 10, 1920, Turkey signed the Treaty of Sèvres, which effectively partitioned the old Ottoman Empire. We don't have time to go into this on this podcast, but maybe in a future episode, it would be wonderful to to delve more deeply into this particular treaty because one of the things that it does is it's so humiliating that it sets off a a civil war in the old Ottoman Empire. Basically, there's a revolution that will be led by the former Colonel Mustafa Kemal, and it ends up in the creation of the independent Turkish Republic. So the old Ottoman Empire crumbles and it's replaced by an independent Turkey, and then a various set of mandates that are given out uh, to especially Britain and France to rule over most of the Middle East. Now again, as we know, the Paris Peace Conference proved to be a massive failure. Rather than laying the foundations for a durable peace, it provided the foundations for a new and even more devastating world war. Why was this? What was so wrong with the treaty? One of the most obvious answers, of course, is that it was enormously hypocritical. A fact that its critics in Germany and other revisionist states happily pointed out. In areas that concern the defeated powers, the cherished ideal of national self-determination had basically been thrown away. If you think about, for example, a city like Dansk. Dansk is uh, spelled with a G today in Poland. It's at the mouth of the Vistula River. Before World War II, it was known as Danzig, and it was a heavily German-speaking city. 
But if you're thinking about the independence of a future Polish state, you can't have a Germany that can just simply close off Polish shipping to the rest of the world by closing the mouth of the Vistula. And so Dansk, or Danzig, gets turned into a free city that is very dependent in many ways on Poland. Another place we can see this hypocrisy was in the Sudetenland. The Sudetenland is basically this kind of mountainous region on the border between Czechoslovakia and uh, Germany. It was inhabited primarily by German-speaking or ethnically German uh, majorities. We're talking about 3 million ethnic Germans living there. But the Entente powers award it to Czechoslovakia because if you're thinking, how do we defend ourselves from a German invasion, mountains are going to be pretty helpful in that regard. And so the idealism, even though they, they said we believe in it, when it came to practice, they didn't practice it. They, they put security concerns, they put power politics ahead of it. Another area that this became a hugely problematic issue was with Austria. One of the conditions that they put into the treaty with Austria is to say you can never join Germany, right? We're all for national self-determination unless that national self-determination is going to make Germany stronger, in which case now we're, we're you know, seeding a future conflict. We don't want to do that. So we're going to throw this, uh, this provision in there saying you cannot become part of Germany. This, of course, pisses a lot of Austrians off. They say, look, you said we could have national self-determination. We're Germans. They're Germans. We all want to be together. More globally speaking, time and time again, we see these types of criticisms. Again, there are millions of ethnic Hungarians living, especially in Transylvania, that are not going to be part of the new Hungary. We mentioned before a number of those colonial leaders, like Faisal. We mentioned people like Ho Chi Minh. These nations basically get ignored for the most part. Faisal gets a little bit more uh, attention, a little bit more recognition. But for the most part, we don't see an end to colonization. We see a transformation and in some ways an expansion of it after World War I. Finally, of course, the, the big kind of prize that Wilson really wanted to see, not just established, but that he thought would, would guarantee peace in the future and end the threat of war, this was the League of Nations. Well, the United States never joins the League of Nations. Many other countries decide not to join. Even those that do join never really say, well, okay, well, we're all equal here. We're going to do what's you know, in the best interest of everyone. It's kind of like the United Nations today. The UN works on power politics. The UN has blocks. The UN has vetoes that happen. Or they didn't have vetoes during the League of Nations. But to get people to consensus was extraordinarily difficult. And even when they did develop a consensus, they didn't necessarily want to follow through with it. Right? So a big moment that comes up in 1936 is that Italy, under Benito Mussolini, they launched this massive invasion of what was called Abyssinia, or today is called Ethiopia. It's nakedly aggressive. There's no basis for it. The Abyssinians weren't you know, about to take over Italy or something like that. But the world proves incapable of responding to it. They talk about some sanctions. They talk about, well, you know, maybe we'll, we'll con condemn them. We'll say some resolutions. But there is no spirit for defending the international order. There is no desire to risk war for Abyssinia. There's no desire to, to fight back against the Japanese incursions into China. What does it matter? Is it worth the lives of potentially a generation of Frenchmen after we just suffered through all of these losses? So again, part of the failure of the Paris Peace Conference and its treaties is its hypocrisy. The big four just don't live up to their own standards. Okay. It's easy to focus on the shortcomings of Wilson's vision, because as we know, in the long run, his idea of a global order predicated on national self-determination and mutual respect between nations did not come to fruition. We'll discuss why this was in more detail in our next episode. But before we get there, though, 
I want to come back to the meaning of his vision for the present day. We live in an era of incredible cynicism. Faith in institutions is incredibly weak, and it's not hard to see why that is. The early 21st century has been dominated by a series of institutional failures. For someone like me, who graduated from college in 2000, who was a young man at the time of the Iraq invasion in 2003, this seems to be one of the most important events of the early 20th century. For those of you that weren't around for it, the buildup to it was full of this talk of bringing freedom and democracy and sort of securing a new American century. And it was really sold to the American public with this idealism of the, the great benefits that it would have, not just for the United States, but also for the Iraqi people themselves. We were also sold on this idea that it would be relatively easy, that basically Saddam Hussein's forces were uh, very poor, that we would be, of course, famously greeted as liberators by the people. And of course, in the end, it turned out to be quite different. It turned out to be a long slog. It turned out to be a lot of guerrilla warfare. There turned out to be a lot of messiness in what it meant to be Iraqi and what the Iraqi people actually wanted. And so far from becoming this kind of capping event or pinnacle event of a new American century, I think most commentators, most historians, most people, if you look back on the history of the Iraq war, they would say, actually, this was a giant mistake. And if we had it to do all over again, maybe we would have done something a little bit differently. But this question of institutional failures, it runs so much deeper than just Iraq. Think about something like the 2020 coronavirus pandemic. We can get into arguments about you know, whether the measures taken were appropriate or not, but I think we can agree that the tendency of medical institutions like the CDC here in the United States to constantly change the messaging without really explaining why, that all undermined faith in their ability to manage the crisis. Do masks work? When do we need to wear a mask? How long do we need to wear it? What kind of mask? Can we transmit the virus if we've already had it? What if you've been immunized? These questions, these guidelines, the answers kept changing. And this, along with social media, helped spur a loss of confidence in the institution to manage the crisis. Now, I just mentioned social media. One of the big kind of stories of the late 20th, early 21st century has been the collapse of faith in traditional media. Faith in this institution is at an all-time low. And a big part of this is driven by the economics of journalism. Basically, the idea of the old, you know, gumshoe reporter, the local, the guy trying to get the story, the girl trying to get the story, those things no longer exist. Because local media no longer makes economic sense. It's not, there aren't enough newspapers being sold to support local media, which was the most trustworthy. Instead, the media that is most consumed tends to be, the traditional media most consumed, tends to be cable news. And one of the things that they found about cable news is that people aren't interested in seeing, you know, the basic story of, oh, you know, here's the history of some company. Here's a bill that's come up before Congress, right? People want sensationalism. People want speculation. People love to hear commentary. They love punditry. But the history of punditry is one riddled with errors. I mentioned the Iraq war just a moment ago. Go back and watch all the experts talking about the Iraq war and what would happen and notice how many of them were completely wrong. Look at I mentioned the current war in Ukraine a lot. Look at the predictions. It was almost a year ago today that the war started. Look at all the predictions of how quickly Ukraine would fall. And yet here we are a year later and all of the pundits basically have no idea what they're talking about. They got it all wrong. And so why should I trust them? Not everything is about politics, though. Think about economics and economic institutions is not the history of the early 21st century one defined by scandal, something even like the late 19th century. We could go back to the beginning of the century and talk about something like Enron 
where basically they were lying about their incomes and debts, and they basically kind of conspired with uh, their accountant. And it turned out they built this huge company that actually had no value, and it all collapsed. You want a more recent example? We could talk about Sam Bankman-Fried, the cryptocurrency guy. He, he created this exchange called FTX. They seemed to have a lot of money. He was slinging it around left and right. Oh, 30-year-old billionaire. Wow, that's amazing. Oops, it turns out they were also losing lots of money, kind of hiding some of the, uh, the losses, and the whole thing just blew up. Think about something like the Great Recession of 2008. Why did it happen? A big part of it is that some geniuses came up with a kind of mathematical model to value uh, mortgages. They packaged them together. They called them mortgage-backed securities. And this made it possible to hide risky loans within a sort of package that looked more reputable. What happened? Well, when all those people that couldn't afford the loans couldn't pay them back, the whole thing blew up and it caused an absolute meltdown. Institutional failure. The institutional watchdogs that are supposed to watch out for this stuff. They failed. We could throw out Bernie Madoff. The Ponzi scheme from the early 21st century as well. But it's not just economics. We can also talk about culture. The more and more education has become politicized. Both by people who want to view education as a way to pursue their own politics. Or by politicians who see it as a field of combat, of culture war, a way for them to get followers and likes and votes and raise money. But the more and more we start thinking about education as a political field, the less trust we have in our educators to do the jobs they're supposed to do. We could talk about law enforcement in the same way. The more and more we start to see law enforcement as a political vehicle, the less and less faith we have in it as an institution. Finally, these types of scandals can also be seen in some of the world's great cultural institutions. Think about the churches. Think about something like the Catholic Church or the Southern Baptist Church. Have we not seen in the last 10 to 20 years scandal after scandal after scandal where the institutions basically hid sexual predators in the name of maintaining the reputation of of the institution. They took priests that they knew were engaging in illegal behavior and they shifted them to different dioceses. They threatened witnesses to try to force them into silence. So how can we trust the institutions that are supposed to be safeguarding our moral well-being? We can also see this in sporting leagues. You think about some of, again, the big scandals of the 21st century. Here in the United States, how about Jerry Sandusky and Penn State? Well, he may have been molesting players, he may have been abusing them, but Penn State football, they were winning titles, and that's what matters, right? Joe Paterno looked the other way. How about Larry Nasser and the U.S. Gymnastics Association? So the point that I'm making here is that we live in an era of systemic institutional failure, and these failures have provoked incredible cynicism. Now, the causes of this cynicism are obviously different than they were in 1918. But one could argue that the sentiments between then and now are actually fairly similar. So to bring all this back to Wilson and the question that we started this podcast with, do speeches, do words really matter anymore? The answer for the present is, of course, that we'll just have to see. As I've said, there's certainly reasons for all of this present cynicism. But I would caution you not to abandon or ignore the power of words completely. Words and ideas are still important forces in human societies. And as we've discussed, thinking about an idealized future can be an incredibly powerful way to inspire people to think beyond the frustrations and irritations of the present. In 1919, and into the Paris Peace Conference, for a brief moment at least, Woodrow Wilson was able to pull off such a feat, to make the sacrifices of the war seem meaningful once again. And while we as historians tend to focus on the long-term failure of his vision, the truth is that by 1924, Europe had largely stabilized 
and the idea of a world without war seemed at least conceivable. And who knows? Had it not been for the Great Depression, perhaps it would have been so. Okay, that's our show for today. If you'd like to learn more about Wilson, the Paris Peace Conference, or the general post-war environment, you can find recommendations and sources on our website, www.historyoffthepage.com. You can also find us on social media, at HistoryOTP. And if you are so willing, uh, we would love to have your financial support. We have a Patreon page, also under History Off the Page. There are, uh, as I've mentioned before, some expenses related to putting together this podcast. So those of you that have helped out already, we are so, so thankful and grateful for your support. Those of you that are enjoying the podcast, maybe uh, if you want to help us out a little bit, we would also be tremendously grateful. In our next episode, we'll discuss the problems inherent in Wilson's visions and the incredible explosion of violence that took place in Europe during the late teens and early 20s. One could argue as we talk about this thing, the Wilsonian moment, we're basically talking about a coin, and there are, of course, two sides to it. On the one side is the hope and the optimism and the resurrection, one might argue, of classical 19th century European society. But on the other side of that coin is violence, systemic violence provoked not just by the rise of Bolshevism, but also by Wilson's own ideals and own vision of national self-determination. We hope you join us as we explore this topic during our next episode, as we take history off the page. (laughs) 